our American stories, and now it's time for one of our favorite daily segments, This Day in Music History. Take it away, Jesse. This Day in Music History, 1953. During a recording session at Atlantic Records Studios in New York, Ray Charles learns that his mother has died. He continues on with the session, recording the song, Sinner's Prayer. Lord have mercy. Lord have mercy on me. Lord have mercy. Lord have mercy on me. Well, if I've done somebody wrong, Lord, have mercy. And in 1963, the first Monterey Folk Festival took place over three days in Monterey, California. The festival featured Joan Baez, Bob Dylan, as well as Peter, Paul, and Mary. The 1967 Monterey Rock Festival is remembered for the first major appearances by Jimi Hendrix in The Who, as well as the first major public performances of Janis Joplin. Down by the window, just looking Ticket prices varied by seating area and ranged from three bucks to about six fifty, or twenty-two to forty-seven dollars, adjusted for inflation. And in 1975, Elton John was awarded a platinum record for sales of a million copies from the LP *Captain Fantastic* and *The Brown Dirt Cowboy*, the very first album ever to be certified platinum on the day of its release. It debuted at number one on the U.S. Billboard 200 and stayed on top for seven weeks. In 1986, Whitney Houston started a three-week run at number one on the U.S. Singles Chart with Greatest Love of All. It was originally recorded in 1977 by American singer and guitarist George Benson, written and recorded to be the main theme of the 1977 film The Greatest, a biopic of the boxer Muhammad Ali. I believe the children are our future. Teach them well and let them lead the way. But of course, there's always our favorite version of this song from Coming to America, Mr. Randy Watson. Be called the great S. Love of all inside of me. Check the chocolate. And in the year 2012, this day in music history, Donna Summer, the 1970s pop singer known as the Queen of Disco, died of lung cancer. She won five Grammy Awards, six American Music Awards, and had three multi-platinum albums. Hot Stuff won Summer the Grammy Award for Best Female Rock Vocal Performance in the inaugural year the award was given out. In the year 2010, the song was ranked at number 104 on Rolling Stone's list of the 500 greatest songs of all time.
And born this day in music history, 1942, Taj Mahal, U.S. multi-instrumentalist, composer of film soundtracks. In the early 60s, he formed the Rising Suns with Ry Cooter, one of the first interracial bands of the period. Taj Mahal worked with Howlin' Wolf, Buddy Guy, and even Muddy Waters. Here's Taj Mahal now with Statesboro Blues. Also born on this day in music history, 1965, Trent Reznor, American singer-songwriter, record producer, and member of Nine Inch Nails. Reznor, with Atticus Ross, scored the films The Social Network, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, and Gone Girl, winning the Academy Award for Best Original Score for The Social Network and a Grammy for the Best Score Soundtrack for Visual Media on The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. And on this day in music history in 2016, American Texas country and folk singer-songwriter Guy Clark died in Nashville following a lengthy battle with lymphoma. He wrote songs for Johnny Cash, Jimmy Buffett, Lyle Lovett, and so many other artists. Here's Guy Clark with The Cape. And that's this day in music history. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Years old with a flower sack cape tied all around his neck. He climbed up on the garage, he's figuring what the heck. Screwed his courage up so tight that the whole thing come unwound. He got a running start and bless his heart, he headed for the ground. Well, he's one of those who knows that life is just a leap of faith Spread your arms and hold your breath And always trust your cape All grown up with a flower sack cape tied all around his dreams And he's full of piss and vinegar He's busting at the seams So he licked his finger and then he checked the wind He said it's gonna be do or die And he wasn't scared of nothing He's pretty sure he could fly Well, he's one of those who knows that life is just a leap of faith. Spread your arms and hold your breath and always trust your cape. Old and gray with a flower sack cape tied all around his head And he's still jumping off the garage And will be till he's dead All these years the people said He's acting like a kid He did not know he could not fly So he did
This is Our American Stories, and every once in a while we want to lighten it up in a segment. We mash together a few light stories. Sometimes they're uplifting stories that we'll mash together. These are light. And recently, our producer Jesse came across a story in the news about a pet squirrel that defended he and his owners from a burglar. Here's that story. In Meridian, Idaho, Adam Pearl walked into his home on Tuesday realized something didn't seem quite right. I came in the front door and, well, I saw snow prints out in the front driveway going to the back of the house. And so I thought something was awry because nobody usually goes through the yard. Pearl was immediately greeted by his pet squirrel named Joey when he got home. But then he started noticing a few doors that would normally be closed were open. After making his way to the back bedroom, his fear was confirmed once he looked at his gun safe. I started looking at it, and I saw the scratches that were around the walking area. Um, and I, at that point, I knew somebody was definitely in here messing around. Pearl then called Meridian Police, and when Officer Ashley Turner came out to take a look, Joey the Squirrel just had to say hello. Um, and during her investigations, uh, Joey had run in the bedroom just screwing around like he always does between her legs and kind of startled her and uh, she says whoa what was that ah, don't worry about that that's that's just joey pet squirrel you know turner then asked pearl if joey would bite i said well he usually doesn't bite but you never know because he is a squirrel <laughs> officer turner went on her way only to return a few hours later with some of pearl's stolen belongings and some unbelievable news. She said while she was questioning the individual, uh, he had scratches on his hand. So he, she asked him, so did you get that from the squirrel? And he says, yeah, damn thing kept attacking me. It wouldn't stop until I left. <laughs> Joey the squirrel is now being hailed a hero. Nobody can believe it because who can say they have a squirrel that guards their house, which is crazy. You can't ask for much more than that. He's a pain in the butt, but he's great. <laughs> Pearl said he then thanked his pet squirrel, Joey, by giving him Whoppers candies, his favorite treat. We're still working on the being nice to people part, but maybe I shouldn't work on that too much because he obviously took care of the house. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. I love Whoppers too, Jesse. Yeah. That's a great story. You love those animal stories, don't you? I do. I know. You ever heard anybody about a pet squirrel? I haven't. You'd think they'd bite the hell out of you. <laughs> I mean, I've had squirrels in my house once when I was a kid. They tore the place up. Yeah, they're kind of squirrely. They are squirrely. And now we go to a, well, just a light story right here in our own town. Uh, we're in Oxford, Mississippi. This is flyover country. We're about an hour south of Memphis. Great musical part of the world. Short drive to Nashville, short drive to New Orleans, short drive to Memphis. Does it get any better than that for people who love music? And it's a sports town because it's home of Ole Miss. And that's SEC football, and that's SEC everything. College football, that is the best kind. And here's a segment that happened on a radio show, a local radio show here in town and around Mississippi called Head to Head. And it's a sports show, and I actually know the guys who do it. They're good guys. And the show is set up to interview former Ole Miss football player Denzel Kimdichie, a big star, a great player. They had him on the line, and we're about to begin what they expected to be, well, just a normal old interview. Let's take a listen and see what happened. 
He is on your radio this afternoon. Denzel, appreciate uh, a few minutes of your time. How are you? <laughs> Denzel, you there? <laughs> this is not going as well as I had hoped. <laughs> I think he's asleep. That's he's better. Phone in his ear. Hey, Denzel, you there? <laughs> okay, this he's is sleep. I don't think this is going to work. No, I don't think it's going to work. It's working perfectly. <laughs> this is great. For a morning radio. show, that's gold. <laughs> that is gold. That goes in the that goes in the best of CD. Actually, it's not even a morning show. You'll hear it next. That's oh, what gotcha. that's what they found even funnier about this. It wasn't the morning. <laughs> that is. <laughs> and the host of this radio show, and again, it's head to head, and Richard Cross and his pal. Well, they didn't know how to respond. This great star is on the air, except, well, he's not on the air. Let's take a listen to their reaction after hearing their guest fell asleep. <sighs> Should I say it? Well, I'm not going to say it. No, don't. Just just let it go. Um, <laughs> Rhino, is he answering when we, as we call back? You're trying. One more I'm time. I'm trying, but I'm, I'm not getting anything. Okay. okay. Well, let's just move on. Uh, oh, that's not going to work okay. out. I mean, it's, it's early in the day. It's... <laughs> Of course, it is 4.20 p.m. as opposed to 4.20 <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, <laughs> where do you even go with that? Oh, man. <laughs> I they just kept them on the line. I kept, would have, too. Kept tuning in. I, uh, no, you get pot the, up the fader exactly. every couple minutes. Exactly. You get the Jeopardy clock going. You do an over-under <laughs> bet on how long he'll be asleep. Get people to call in and scream at him. You could have gone in so oh. many direct. These amateurs. I would have milked that for an hour. <laughs> oh, that's an hour of radio. That's why we love radio. You never know what's going to happen. That's one of the most highly conditioned athletes in America asleep at 4.30 in the afternoon for an interview. <laughs> By the way, Denzel Kimdichie later tweeted, quote, I had been up in studio all night wrapping up my music project, and I did fall asleep while on the radio. <laughs> well, you know, we, we sort of sort of busted on that one. And uh, last but not least, our favorite guy, Stephen Goldberg's dreams. You heard that right. We're going to hear a dude's daydreams. And not just any dude, one of our favorite dudes. Steve is the former chairman of sociology department at City College, and he is the foremost expert on patriarchy, and a guy who, he daydreams a lot. And now we bring you Steve and his latest daydream, and before we do that, Steve reads us his mandatory disclosure. These are all real daydreams that I have had over the past seven decades. They are not written in the sense that one paces the floor at five in the morning trying to write a daydream about X, Y, or Z. These daydreams all simply arrived fully formed, poppied into my head unexpectedly. That's the wonderful thing about daydreams. They require no talent at all. At least back then, and for all I know to this day, the state of Maine was quite a strange place. For example, the potato was king. School started much later in the year than it did anywhere else uh, so that kids could harvest potatoes. More relevant here, there were plenty of trains, but the trains were only for potatoes. There were no trains for people. For most people, this was an in inconvenience, perhaps a major inconvenience. But they had access to planes and cars. 
At least most of them did. But not a little girl named Diana. Diana's parents um, were poor and didn't own a car, nor could they afford plane fare. A train ticket was within reach, but trains were, as mentioned, only for potatoes. For little Diana, the situation was a disaster. See, Diana um, had contracted a, an excruciatingly painful disease, uh, one that, that could be fatal if not treated with a protocol available only um, at a hospital in Atlanta, Georgia. People were sympathetic, but the law was undeniably clear. The trains were only for potatoes. Despite this, a young lawyer took Diana's case pro bono. Uh, though realizing it was in all likelihood hopeless, hopeless. If that were not bad enough, the lawyer soon learned that the case was to be heard by Judge Crockett, a judge known for brutally uh, rigid allegiance to a literal interpretation of the law. The lawyer looked dejected and Diana forlorn as the case lasted but a few minutes, and the judge rendered his decision. Maine law limits the use of trains to potatoes and prohibits their use by human beings. This is clear beyond the possibility of dispute or contradiction. That is the law. All I can add is, she looks like a potato to me. Oh boy. <laughs> These are out there, folks, and we just love them. So when Stephen Goldberg sends us one of his daydreams, we do them. And by the way, I love the pet squirrel named Joey. And I like that he named the pet squirrel named Joey. Just an ordinary war- uh, an ordinary name for an ordinary pet. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Just some light stuff. We do it every once in a while. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org, OurAmericanNetwork.org, to hear and see all that we do. This is Our American Stories, and this is National Police Week. Back in 1962, President John F. Kennedy declared May 15th as Peace Officers Memorial Day, and ever since, we have honored fallen police officers during the week that day falls in. Today, we take you back to 2016 in two unrelated incidents on July 5th and 6th. Two black men were shot by police in Louisiana and Minnesota. The following night on July 7th, Protesters gathered in cities across the United States. In Dallas, about 800 marched, and they did so in an area protected by around 100 cops. As you might imagine, this was an emotional but peaceful event, 
until one evildoer set his plan into motion. Described by his friends and co-workers as someone with anger management problems who was distrustful of police, this deranged man said he wanted to kill white people, especially white officers. Two minutes before 9 p.m. that night in Dallas, this toxic brew turned into action as he began shooting at police and civilian protesters. Since the cops were unsure where the gunfire came from, or even how many attackers there were, they did what they knew they had to do. They moved into the open to secure streets and intersections and protect vulnerable protesters as other cops zeroed in on the gunfire. This eventually led to a standoff with the attacker holed up in a college building. He told police that he would only speak to black police officers. According to Dallas Police Chief David Brown, quote, We had negotiated with him for about two hours, and he just basically lied to us, playing games, laughing at us, singing, asking how many did he get and that he wanted to kill some more. Faced with a fortified, heavily armed opponent and seeing no possibility of a negotiated end, Chief Brown ordered a bomb disposal robot to deliver a pound of explosives to the attacker. That did the job, but the job wasn't over. The attacker had said he placed bombs all over Dallas, putting more citizens at risk. As it turns out, he was lying, but he had done enough damage. Eleven were injured and five dead. In the following days, police and well-wishers from all over the world converged to honor the five Dallas cops who were killed that night. Among the folks in attendance at the memorial service were President and Mrs. Obama and former President and Mrs. Bush. Here's how former President George W. Bush began his remarks. Today the nation grieves, but those of us who love Dallas and call it home have had five deaths in the family. Laura and I see members of law enforcement every day. We count, we count them as our friends. And we know, like for every other American, that their courage is our protection and shield. We're proud of the men we mourn and the community that has rallied to honor them and support the wounded. Our mayor and police chief and our police department have been mighty inspirations for the rest of the nation. These slain officers were the best among us. Lauren Ahrens, beloved husband to Detective Katrina Ahrens and father of two. Michael Kroll, caring son, brother, uncle, nephew, and friend. Michael Smith, U.S. Army veteran, devoted husband and father of two. Brent Thompson, Marine Corps vet, recently married. Patrick Zamaripa, U.S. Navy Reserve Combat Veteran, proud father, and loyal Texas Rangers fan. <laughs> With their deaths, we have lost so much. We are grief-stricken, heartbroken, and forever grateful. President Bush then got to the heart of the matter. Why had so many gathered in Dallas for this memorial? Every officer has accepted a calling that sets them apart. Most of us imagine if the moment called for that we would risk our lives to protect a spouse, 
or a child. Those wearing the uniform assume that risk for the safety of strangers. They and their families share the unspoken knowledge that each new day can bring new dangers. But none of us were prepared or could be prepared for an ambush by hatred and malice. The shock of this evil still has not faded. At times, it seems like the forces pulling us apart are stronger than the forces binding us together. Argument turns too easily into animosity. Disagreement escalates too quickly into dehumanization. Too often we judge other groups by their worst examples, while judging ourselves by our best intentions. And this is... And this has strained our bonds of understanding and common purpose. But Americans, I think, have a great advantage. To renew our unity, we only need to remember our values. We have never been held together by blood or background. We are bound by things of the spirit, by shared commitments to common ideals. And President Bush then elaborated on those ideals. At our best, we practice empathy, imagining ourselves in the lives and circumstances of others. This is the bridge across our nation's deepest divisions. And it's not merely a matter of tolerance, but of learning from the struggles and stories of our fellow citizens and finding our better selves in the process. At our best, we honor the image of God we see in one another. We recognize that we are brothers and sisters sharing the same brief moment on earth and owing each other the loyalty of our shared humanity. At our best, we know we have one country, one future, one destiny. We do not want the unity of grief, nor we want the unity of fear. We want the unity of hope, affection, and high purpose. We know that the kind of just, humane country we want to build, that we have seen in our best dreams, is made possible when men and women in uniform stand guard. At their best, when they're trained and trusted and accountable, they free us from fear. The Apostle Paul said, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of strength and love and self-control. Those are the best responses to fear in the life of our country. And they're the code of the peace officer. Finally, President Bush turned his attention to the families of the police officers killed in the line of duty. Today, all of us feel a sense of loss, but not equally. I'd like to conclude with the word of the families, the spouses, and especially the children of the fallen. Your loved one time with you was too short. They did not get a chance to properly say goodbye. But they went where duty called. They defended us, even to the end. They finished well. We will not forget what they did for us. Your loss is unfair. We cannot explain it. We can stand beside you and share your grief. And we can pray that God will comfort you 
with a hope deeper than sorrow and stronger than death. May God bless you. And after these short messages, we'll bring you more from vigils and memorials for the five Dallas police officers killed by a deranged attacker in July of 2016. Cops killed while watching over American citizens exercising their right to protest. Celebrating National Police Week here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we're celebrating National Police Week, and we love to honor the cops, and the fallen cops particularly. We honor soldiers on Memorial Day. We always do a special two-hour version. We honor our soldiers on Veterans Day and all through the year, and we do the same for cops, particularly our random acts of kindness, where we regularly tell stories of cops who just do extraordinary things in their neighborhood. And yes, there are some bad cops. Take a listen to our hour with the head of... Uh, internal affairs at New York City Police Department. He was head of he was head of internal affairs for 15 years or so, and wrote a terrific book called Blue on Blue. And there are bad cops, but good cops hate them, and know that good cops hate bad cops, and most of them want to see them gone. And so we're going to take you right now to a memorial service for one of the five Dallas police officers killed in July of 2016. Dallas area rapid transit officer. Brent Thompson is first. Here are two of his daughters standing with their four other siblings telling the audience about their dad. Please bear with us. Um, This is really hard for all of us, but luckily our dad taught us how to fight under pressure, and that's what we're doing today. (laughs) And we wanted to say thank you to everyone here supporting him and everyone who's been supporting him and our family and all the other heroes that lost their lives. Um, We all need that support and we really appreciate it. It's been so overwhelming seeing all of y'all here today for our dad and honoring him and just giving us respect for what he's done for us because that's something he would have loved to have seen. Um, Y'all knew our dad as a police officer, but we knew him as our dad. His only goal in life was to provide a better life for his children and us, whether it was going, becoming, an over, um, becoming a Marine or going overseas. He worked so, so hard to provide for us his entire life, working two jobs, sometimes countless, countless numbers of overtime just so we didn't have to struggle and work hard because that's what he wanted for us. And luckily he's left this legacy that's something no one can take away. <laughs> And this is something we'll never be able to forget. And I know he's looking so happy that he's done what he's been trying to accomplish his entire life, providing all the support from all of the different officers, organizations, everyone. And I know it's just, we're so proud of him and we just want him to know that we love him and that he's done it, he succeeded. 
Every child thinks that their dad is a hero, but the six of us up here can hold our heads up high knowing that our dad is a hero. I think it's really important to remember he was just not a hero to Dallas, but to the world. He fought overseas for many, many years, not fighting just for us, but for everyone as well. He was gone on special mission trips countless, countless times. He missed birthdays, dance competitions, tennis games, football games, but he never missed a Christmas. And I remember one year we all thought he wasn't going to be able to make it home. And they told us, like, we'll just celebrate later, you know, Christmas in July. But he surprised us all, and he made it home. And now he's home for good. One thing I would always say to my dad when he walked out the door was, Goodbye, Daddy. Be safe. And tonight we say our final, Goodbye, Daddy. We love you. Be safe. And listen to this stirring ceremonial final radio call for Officer Michael Kroll at Prestonwood Baptist Church in Plano, Texas. Now let's give the last word to Dallas Police Chief David Brown, a man who had worked for decades to reform Dallas Police to increase transparency and accountability, the man who ended the standoff with a lunatic who attacked a peaceful protest and killed five cops, and the man who in many ways became a symbol for the best that his department and profession had to offer. No white, no black, no artificial division. Faster than a speeding bullet more powerful than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. Look, it's a train, it's a plane. No, it's Superman. As a young child, I ran home from school to hear that so that I could see the reruns of the television series, Superman. I love superheroes. 
Because they're now like what I aspired to be when I grew up. They're like cops. They're like police officers. Superheroes. And, and cops are mission focused. Give us a job to do, we'll focus on accomplishing the mission. So what's our mission today? It's helping these families understand how to conquer this tragedy. What do we tell you all? Well, being a person of faith, I always refer back to the good book, the Bible. And we have an example of how to conquer this tragedy. When the good Lord was crucified and rose on the third day, alive, he said, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Families, we love you. We love you with everything we have. We are now your surrogate family members. We're your brothers and your sisters. When you need us, you call. Because we'll not only be loving you today, we'll be loving you always. Always. Till the end of time. We'll be loving you until you are me and I am you. Always. Always. Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. Look, it's a train. It's a plane. No, it's Patricio Zamarepa. Look, it's Brent Thompson. Look, it's Michael Crow. Look, it's Lauren Aarons. Look, it's Michael Smith. Godspeed. God bless you. God bless the Dallas Police Department. And there you have it, Police Chief David Brown, who, by the way, had urged anyone in Black Lives Matter that if they wanted to make a difference, they really wanted to make a difference, there were openings at the Dallas Police Department. And to many people's credit, well, applications rose. And that's a good thing. And a great unifier for his city, for the country, an African-American himself, Police Chief David Brown's final words. And again, this is National Police Week, and we're celebrating the week. The five fallen heroes in Dallas, celebrated and honored here on Our American Stories, their stories. Beautiful stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we're now joined by a regular contributor to our show, Adam Andrzejewski, one of the leading government watchdogs out there for you and for us and for the American people. Adam founded OpenTheBooks.com, a transparency portal with 3.5 billion government salaries, pensions, and expenditures from all levels of government. And our favorite part is that you can type in your zip code and see all of this spending in your own local area, empowering local citizens with local knowledge to expose local waste. And Adam, thanks for joining us again. Well, it's great to be on the program. Thank you, Lee, for your interest in our work. You bet. And our audience loves this stuff, and I think people just want to be empowered to know more. And you recently had an article in Forbes, Adam, that shocked our team. It started off by posing the question, quote, what has a $3.5 trillion unfunded liability manually calculated on paper inside a Pennsylvania mountain and cost taxpayers more money annually than the entire state budget of Florida? What's the answer to that question, Adam? It's federal employee pensions, Lee. It's, uh, so in- incredibly, um, the, I guess, or not so incredibly, the federal government pensions that taxpayers backstopped are underfunded. Moody's did a study. Um, they found that it's underfunded these federal pension plans to the tune of three point five trillion dollars, which is a which is a lot of money to say the least. The uh, the the annual payouts that taxpayers backstop are much larger than than um, the entire budget in the state of Florida. Um, for instance, every single year on military and civil service pensions, taxpayers pay out one hundred and twenty five billion dollars out of those plans to to retirees for their retirement annuities. And Adam, how do we how do we stumble upon this? How did you find out about it? And then how do we find out in a breakdown who these people are and how much they're getting? Were we able to get this information, like names and and numbers? Well, it's a great story on how we how we uncovered this and unearthed this. Um, we uh, about five years ago we filed a Freedom of Information Act request with the federal government at the Office of Personnel Management and we asked for all current salaries and bonuses of federal public uh, the public employees that work in the civilian workforce and they they provided this and over the years we now at OpenTheBooks.com we've compiled uh, nine years worth of all current federal uh, employees with their salaries and bonuses and we paid it, played a big role in the uh, scandal at Veterans Affairs and followed those bonuses up until the current time. Uh, we, uh, when we got that information, we immediately refiled a request with the federal government for the retirement annuities. And we were told very, very specifically our request was rejected, and the, the Obama administration rejected our request saying that, uh, quote, Clearly, this is an unwarranted invasion of personal privacy. So over the years, we have explored it, and, and, uh, and sure enough, federal law prohibits the disclosure. You and I, Lee, we don't, and everybody in the listening audience, for even our congressman or senator, we, we don't have the right to see their retirement pension payout. And by the way, that's the retirement pension payout that we're paying. That's right, right. So taxpayers... We pay into it, 
the employees pay a small portion during their active working years into this retirement plan, but the actuarial lifetime benefit is much greater, obviously, than what the employees put in. It's uh, it's uh, more uh, taxpayer-funded than anything else. And at the end of the day, we guarantee everything, even that $3.5 trillion unfunded liability. So certainly, uh, you can't debate these public policy issues without simply being able to see who's getting what after how long of service, what did they do. For instance, the example we like to use is the IRS uh, boss over uh, the targeting scandal over the last couple of years was was, uh, Lois Lerner at the IRS. Mm -hmm. She retired after receiving massive bonuses in in her last three years. And two Washington, D.C. think tanks estimated her lifetime pension, and their estimates were $50,000 a year apart, which is a difference of about $2 million over the course of her lifetime. So I say we put all the questions to rest. We open up the federal pensions. We can see Lewis Lerner's pension, your congressman and U.S. senator's pension when they're retired, and everybody else. And by the way, Adam, I think we need to dig in here just a little bit. When we talk about pensions here, and you're talking about the the civil servants putting a little bit of money in, it's not the same as how, well, most of us who work in the private sector, if we're lucky enough to have a, an employer throw a few shekels into a pot, into our 401k. Talk about this defined benefit program, because this is a real old school, like 1940s style private sector pension plan that the public servants get, and yet most Americans aren't getting, Adam. Talk about that difference. Well, it's true. So, so back in the 1930s, uh, private companies uh, probably had 8 out of 10 of their retirement plans were these, were these pension plans. And basically that says if you work for, say, 30 years or 35 years, you will earn X or X plus inflation for the rest of your life. And, and during your working years, employees saved into those plans. The employers put big dollars into those plans to be able to fully fund the actuarial benefit over the course of, of a lifetime once the employee retired. Uh, in the 1980s, that percent was still at 60%. That was the type of plan that existed in the private sector that currently exists at the federal level and in most states and even municipalities and local units across the country. That's now down to 4%. And everybody remembers, you know, the airlines, uh, these defined benefit plans at the airlines, when they went bankrupt and there wasn't enough money in those pension plans. And, um, you know, that's kind of what kicked off the the end of those plans. Um, They were just unsustainable on a long-term basis. Well, within our government, we still have that. But it's this time it's taxpayers that are that are would uh, you know were the ones that would have to foot the bill. Well, Adam, and that might explain the lack of sunlight. That alone could explain the lack of sunlight. I mean, the the public doesn't get these defined benefit plans anymore. Very, very few, and the people who are supposedly serving us are, and yet don't want us to find out exactly what's going on. When we come back, we're going to find out more about what's going on. The story behind the story of our public servants' pension plans. This is Lee Habib, Adam Anjayevsky's story, here on Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we continue Adam Andrzejewski's story on public pensions. And, you know, we were doing an hour with uh, Philip Howard on on how hard it is to fire a civil servant um, and how they all get glowing scores because you can't even write something negative about a civil servant. So civil servants not only can't or rarely get fired, but then after a lifetime of work in which we're not sure how productive or not or unproductive they were, they then get this remarkable uh, pension that we can't even calculate the time you did. There was a 50,000 differential in annual benefits. And most people are thinking, 50,000 differential, Adam? Most people don't get 50,000 in total from their private <laughs> company right. for everything. That's right, Lee. Absolutely. Well, even at the local level, these, these government pensions need sunlight. In, in 32 states, um, you know, public pension transparency is the law. And this has been very helpful to us as we've proved the value of uh, the disclosures. For instance, um, at the New York, New Jersey Port Authority, uh, they don't have a reputation for good government, but the, uh, we found that a police lieutenant retired in 2013 – his last annual salary was 129,000, and then he began he began collecting a pension that started for his and will continue for his entire lifetime of 172,000 dollars. An airport assistance uh, uh, operations manager retired at a last year final year salary of 89,000, and soon began collecting the pension of 103,000. Uh, in Illinois, we found the poster child example of of. Uh, of malfeasance on, on public pay and pensions, uh, a union boss, a pair of them, two of them, substitute taught in the Illinois public schools for one day, and then when they retired about two years later, they re- they re- will receive and have started receiving one a $1 million lifetime teacher pension. It was one day in the public schools, and now uh, they get a teacher pension, a public teacher pension, a lifetime It'll add up, each of them, for a million dollars. And, you know, some stories you laugh with and about because they're so tragic. And you just have no other choice but to laugh. And I think part of us, we're laughing a little bit because it's so outrageous and it's so wrong. Um, you note that in 2012, Adam, the federal government admitted that 21,000 retired federal employees are collecting pensions over 100000 a year. i got to tell you, if that's what government service and public service looks like, A lot of people are thinking, sign me up to serve because the servant's going to make more money than the people they're serving. Well, and it's true. Now now you start with people living longer. You start to look at the cost of a single position. So in California, California, like New York, like Illinois, we have transparency of public pensions. And this is obviously what we want to bring to the federal level. And there's legislation that we're helping draft in in real time on this. Uh, In California, we looked at, at one position. And it is the, uh, in the in the Los Angeles Sanitary District, the supervisor of that district. It is now every single year at taxpayer cost. It costs us a million dollars. And here's the breakdown: uh, there is there is a current supervisor, obviously, and he makes about three hundred and fifty thousand a year. And then there's two retired supervisors, and those supervisors are out on pensions of over three hundred thousand dollars a year. A piece. You add it all up. One person's working. Two are retired, and taxpayers are on the hook for a million dollars a year. It's unbelievable, Adam. And you know, when you think about the, the civil service uh, itself, the, the, the idea of government workers 
having pensions and being able to negotiate and collectively bargain, you know, for folks who don't know it, you know, when Franklin Delano Roosevelt, you know, first came up with the idea of this, you know, this, this idea of civil servants and creating this massive bureaucracy, even he was against the idea of them unionizing and then creating this negotiating and, and, and leveraged power to come out at the public taxpayer trough. He was worried that this would become, well, the problem it is today. Talk about that, because it didn't all start this way, Adam. How did it get this way? Well, it's very true. So what you see is, for instance, my father taught in the Illinois public schools for 37 years, and he was part of a culture where you were underpaid as you went, but you had a gold-plated pension at the end of the day. And that's what kept a lot of teachers in my father's generation teaching. Um, Now what we find is that the salaries of the teachers, for instance, in my home high school district in Hinsdale, Illinois, there are 410 six-figure educators only 250 of them are actually working, making more than $100,000 a year. The other 160 of them are out the door retired on pensions of over $100,000 a year. So what Franklin Delano Roosevelt was worried about is he knew you can't educate kids if you're giving gold-plated pensions. Those, those educators are not in the classroom. That's right. He had the foresight in the, in the, uh, a long time ago to... Uh, to correctly issue that clarion call. And by the way, he also understood if the, if, the, if the government employees are negotiating with the people they help get elected, there's no one at that negotiating table representing the taxpayer, and that's all the good folks at home listening, who are, many of whom are struggling to meet their bills. And by the way, more often than not, Adam, just listen to us for a music segment or an inspiring segment. Periodically, though, we like to do these stories because this is where the rubber hits the road, and this is where so much money goes out the door when it relates to that local property tax. Like, people are going, where do my local property taxes go? That's a big hit. Where does that federal tax dollar go? Where does that state tax dollar go? A lot of it's going to these pensions, Adam. Well, that's exactly right. So I pay $27,000 a year in property taxes on my home, and when you break it down, it all goes to local units of government. So I might own title to my home, which I do. The home's actually paid off. But I'm paying a monthly rental payment for pay and pensions in my local school districts uh, uh, to my local units of government. So I may hold title, but I'm paying rent to government. That is the definition of socialism. I also want to take you back to the, uh, to the federal level, because uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, with the uh, you know, correctly called, as you're pointing out, uh, the power of the unions to negotiate their own uh, wages, and these things happen behind closed doors. Here's a fact. Um, at the federal level, uh, we can only get five out of six bonus buckets of current active federal employees. The sixth bucket, which we can't get, is three or four times larger than the other five buckets combined. We can't get it because the, f- the feds negotiated away our right to know about that bonus bucket during the union uh, negotiation. Our, the disclosure of that bonus for current employees is prohibited because the unions wrote it into the contract. Unbelievable. And I'm telling you, this is going to get people mad. And always we like to ask, and the reason we like having someone like you on, Adam, is this isn't a Republican thing and this isn't a Democrat thing. I, look, in Wisconsin, you had a traditionally blue state vote in, a, I believe, a red governor for one reason. It was the pension reform. And people found out the numbers and they went, 
We just need this fixed. We're voting for the guy who will fix it. R.D., whatever. Uh, so talk about what's happening on the federal level. There's one particular person, Ron DeSantis in Florida, who's really taking this up as a cause. Tell his story. Why is he doing this? So Florida Congressman Ron DeSantis, at the, at the first of the year, we noticed in the press that he had put a bill in the hopper, and he was leading on it with personal example. What the bill said was, if you're a congressman or United States senator, uh, let's cut that pension plan. Like, we don't need that pension. Public service is not supposed to come with a lifetime payout. Uh, and he led by his own personal example. He did not take, and he rejected um, a pension for his service in Congress. Uh, so that got a lot of press. And people, um, I think, left, right, and center, uh, a lot of people back that legislation. It's going nowhere, I have to tell you, in Congress. None of the congressmen, even the Republican-controlled Congress, will, will touch this bill. But nevertheless, it's the right thing to do. We reached out to uh, Congressman DeSantis to see if he would support opening all federal pensions to simple uh, sunlight and transparency. We are working on draft legislation with him. Well, Adam, we appreciate your work. And where can people go to find out more? Uh, your listening audience can come to OpenTheBooks.com and just start searching. We, uh, in uh, the 15 most populous states, we nearly have every dime taxed and spent at every level of government online. And you can also see it in our award-winning mobile app. It's uh, free for Apple and Android. Just key Open the Books. You can download it on your smartphone, and you can do your searching there. We've pushed all of this to your smartphone or mobile device. We love it. It makes it easy for folks to figure out what's going on right in their own neighborhoods. My wife did it, and we were shocked to see multimillionaires, wives, and, well, some of the husbands taking out small business loans uh, on the taxpayer oh, right. dime. <laughs> multimillionaires taking out small business loans. And we're wondering what we're going to do with that information because they would be really upset if that went out. But we're really upset that they're taking taxpayer-subsidized loans when they have multimillion-dollar homes and multimillion-dollar businesses. My, and, my local Rolex jeweler got over $4 million of, of, uh, of small business lending right in, my, in, in the hometown of Hinsdale. I mean, we are lending uh, you know, to the wealthy lifestyle. Fantastic. And, Adam, your work, we love it. Keep it coming. Adam Angievsky, OpenTheBooks.com. His story here on Our American Stories. our american stories and it's commencement time and we love bringing you the best commencement speeches of old and new and today we're bringing you will ferrell's university of southern california commencement speech he gave this in 2017 and it went exactly how you'd imagine will ferrell well how he'd give a commencement speech here's how he started things off it is uh, incredibly surreal one might even say unbelievable that I get to deliver this address to you. As a freshman in the fall of 1986, if you were to come up to me and say that in the year 2017, you, Will Farrell, will be delivering the commencement address for USC, I would have hugged you <laughs> with tears in my eyes. 
I then, I then would have asked this person from the future, does that mean I graduated? <laughs> yes, you did, says the person from the future. What else can you tell me about the future? Future person turns to me and says, I can tell you that you will become one of the most famous alumni of this university. Mentioned in the same breath as John Wayne, Neil Armstrong, and Rob Kardashian. But it turns out I did graduate in 1990 with a degree in sports information. <laughs> yes, you heard me, sports information. A program so difficult, so arduous, that they discontinued the major eight years after I left. Those of us with sports information degrees are an elite group. We are, we are like the Navy SEALs of USC graduates. There are very few of us and there was a high dropout rate. So, I graduate and I immediately get a job right out of college working for ESPN, right? Wrong. No, I move right back home. Back home to the mean streets of Irvine, California. <laughs> Yes, Irvine always gets that response. <laughs> Pretty great success story, right? So he put all that hard work into graduating only to move back in with his mom without any idea of what to do with the rest of his life. Will Farrell then tells us how he met a certain professor who gave him an opportunity to be funny. Yeah, I moved back home for a solid two years, I might add. And I was lucky, actually. Lucky that I had a very supportive and understanding mother who's sitting out there in the crowd who let me move back home. And she recognized that while I had an interest in pursuing sports casting, my gut was telling me that I really wanted to pursue something else. And that something else was comedy. For you see, the seeds for this journey were planted right here on this campus. This campus was a theater or testing lab, if you will. I was always trying to make my friends laugh whenever I could find a moment. I had a, a work-study job at the Humanities Audio-Visual Department that would allow me to take off from time to time. By allow me, I mean I would just leave and they didn't notice. Uh, <laughs> so I would literally leave my job if I knew friends were attending class close by and crash a lecture while in character. My good buddy, Emil, who's also here today, Emil, in the house. Emil told me one day that I should crash his thematic options literature class one day. So I cobbled together a janitor's outfit, complete with work gloves, safety goggles, a dangling lit cigarette, and a bucket full of cleaning supplies. And then I proceeded to walk into the class, interrupting the lecture, informing the professor that I'd just been sent from physical plant to clean up a student's vomit. <laughs> True story. What Emil neglected to tell me was that the professor of his class was Ronald Gottesman, a professor who co-edited the Norton Anthology of American Literature. Needless to say, a big-time guy. 
A month after visiting my, my friend's class as the janitor, I, I was walking through the campus when someone grabbed me by the shoulder and it was Ron Gottesman. I thought for sure he was going to tell me to never do that again. Instead, what he told me was that he loved my barging in on his class and that he thought it was one of the funniest things he'd ever seen and would I please do it again? So, on invitation from Professor Gottesman, I would barge in on his lecture class from time to time as the guy from Physical Plant, coming by to check on things, and the professor would joyfully play along. One time I got my hands on a power drill, and I just stood outside the classroom door operating the drill. for a good minute. Unbeknownst to me, Professor Gottesman was wondering aloud to his class, I wonder if we're about to get a visit from our physical plant guy. <laughs> I then walked in as if on cue and the whole class erupted in laughter. After leaving, Professor Gottesman then weaved the surprise visit into his lecture on Walt Whitman and the leaves of grass. Moments like these encouraged me to think that Maybe I was funny to whole groups of people who didn't know me. And this wonderful professor had no idea how his encouragement of me to come and interrupt his class, no less, was enough to give myself permission to be silly and weird. Will Ferrell goes on to talk about paying his dues in show business, in stand-up comedy, and improvisation. My senior year, I would discover a comedy and improv troupe called The Groundlings, located on Melrose Avenue. This was the theater company that in school that gave the starts to Lorraine Newman, Phil Hartman, John Lovitz, Pee Wee Herman, Conan O'Brien, Lisa Kudrow, to name a few. Later it would become my home, where I would meet the likes of Chris Kattan, Sherry O'Terry, Anna Gasteyer, Chris Parnell, Maya Rudolph, Will Forte, and Kristen Wiig. I went to one of their shows during the spring semester of my senior year and in fact got pulled up on stage during an audience participation sketch. I was so afraid and awestruck at what the actors were doing that I didn't utter a word. And even in this moment of abject fear and total failure, I found it to be thrilling to be on that stage. I then knew I wanted to be a comedic actor. So starting in the fall of 1991, for the next three and a half years, I was taking classes and performing in various shows at the Groundlings and around Los Angeles. I was even trying my hand at, at stand-up comedy. Not great stand-up, mind you, but enough material to get myself up in front of strangers. I would work the phones to invite all my SC friends to places like Nino's Italian Restaurant in Long Beach, the San Juan Depot in San Juan Capistrano, and the Cannery in Newport Beach. And those members of my Trojan family would always show up. My stand-up act was based mostly on material derived from watching old episodes of Star Trek. My opening joke was to sing the opening theme to Star Trek.
when we come back, more from Will Farrell. What a commencement speech and what advice, what wisdom. This is Our American Stories. It's commencement month. You're celebrating it in your families, and we're bringing you the best and some of the worst commencement speeches of all time, as we do every May and June here on Our American Stories. our American stories and we continue with Will Farrell's commencement speech to the graduating class from the University of Southern California. What a treat for the students. Uh, this wasn't my graduation speaker, my goodness. I don't even remember. No, actually it was the governor of New Jersey at the time whom I can't remember and it was dull as paint. There should be a rule. No politician should be allowed to speak on graduation day. That should just be a rule. Republican, Democrat, it doesn't matter. Not allowed. By the way, some of the speeches you'll hear and have heard, Denzel Washington, Robert De Niro, his was terrific at NYU, Admiral McRaven, Steve Jobs, his Stanford commencement speech was remarkable, the Farrelly brothers, as funny as it gets, and Clarence Thomas, Supreme Court Justice at Hillsdale College. My goodness, aside of him, nobody knows. A remarkable story, a great speech. Now let's return to Will Farrell. At USC, Will told us about a professor that would allow him to be outrageous and interrupt class, being the catalyst into his life of comedy. Farrell had been paying his dues in comedy by doing stand-up and improv, and now he continues his story. I wasn't extremely confident that I would succeed during this time period. And after moving back to L.A., there were many a night where, in my L.A. apartment, I would sit down to a meal of spaghetti topped with mustard with only $20 in my checking account, and I would think to myself, oh well, I can always be a substitute school teacher. (laughs) And yes, I was afraid. You're never not afraid. I'm still afraid. I was afraid to write this speech. And now I'm I'm just realizing how many people are watching me right now, and it's scary. (laughs) Can you please look away while I deliver the rest of the speech? But my fear of failure never approached in magnitude my fear of what if. What if I never tried at all? By the spring of 1995, producers from Saturday Night Live had come to see the current show at the Groundlings. After two harrowing auditions and two meetings with executive producer Lorne Michaels, which all took place over the course of six weeks, I got the word. I was hired to the cast of Saturday Night Live for the 95-96 season. I couldn't believe it, and and even though I went on to enjoy seven seasons on the show, it was a rocky beginning for me. After my first show, one review referred to me as the most annoying newcomer of the new cast. (laughs) Someone showed this to me, and I, I promptly put it up on the wall in my office, reminding myself 
that to some people I will be annoying. Some people will not think I'm funny and that that's okay. One woman wrote to me and said she hated my portrayal of George W. Bush. It was mean-spirited, not funny, and besides, you have a fat face. <laughs> I wrote her back. And I said, I appreciate your letter, and she was entitled to her opinion. But that my job as a comedian, especially on a show like Saturday Night Live, was to hold up a mirror to our political leaders and engage from time to time in satirical reflection. As for my fat face, you are 100% right. I'm trying to work on that. Please don't hesitate to write me again if you feel like I've lost some weight in my face. The venerable television critic for the Washington Post, Tom Shales, came up to me during my last season of the show. He told me congratulations on my time at the show, and then he apologized for things he had written about me in some of his early reviews of my work. I paused for a second before I spoke, and then I said, How dare you, you son of a bitch! I could tell this startled him. And then I told him I was kidding, and that I'd never read any of his reviews. It was true, I hadn't read his reviews. In fact, I didn't read any reviews because, once again, I was too busy throwing darts at the dartboard, all the while facing my fears. When he left after a successful run on Saturday Night Live, Will Ferrell had yet to reach his full potential. He continues with his story and talks about he defi- and talks about how he defines success. Even as I left SNL, none of the studios were willing to take a chance on me as a comedy star. It took us three years of shopping Anchorman around before anyone would make it. When I left SNL, all I really had was a, a movie called Old School that wouldn't be released for another year, and a subpar script that needed a huge rewrite about a man raised by elves at the North Pole. Even now, I still lose out on parts that I want so desperately. My most painful example was losing the role of Queen Elizabeth in the film The Queen. Apparently, it came down to two actors, myself and Helen Mirren. The rest is history. Dame Helen Mirren, you stole my Oscar! Now, one may look at me as having great success, which I have in the strictest sense of the word. And don't get me wrong, I love what I do, and I feel so fortunate to get to entertain people. But to me, my definition of success is my 16 and a half year marriage to my beautiful and talented wife, Vivica. Success are my three amazing sons, Magnus, 13, Matthias, 10, and Axel, age 7. Right there. Stand up, guys. Take a bow. There you go. Success to me is my involvement in the charity Cancer for College, which gives college scholarships to cancer survivors. Started by my great friend and SC alum, Craig Pollard, a two-time cancer survivor himself, 
who thought of the charity while we were fraternity brothers at the Delt House up on West Adams. Craig was also one of the members of my Trojan family sitting front and center at my bad stand-up comedy shows cheering me on. No matter how cliche it may sound, you will never truly be successful until you learn to give beyond yourself. Empathy and kindness are the true signs of emotional intelligence. And that's what Viv and I try to teach our boys. Hey, Matthias, get your hands off Axel right now. Stop it. I can see you, okay? In closing, Will Farrell gives his parting advice to the graduating class of the University of Southern California before he serenades us with his a cappella version of I Will Always Love You. To those of you graduates sitting out there who have a pretty good idea of what you'd like to do with your life, congratulations. For many of you who maybe don't have it all figured out, it's okay. That's the same chair that I sat in. Enjoy the process of your search without succumbing to the pressure of the result. Trust your gut. Keep throwing darts at the dartboard. Don't listen to the critics, and you will figure it out. Class of 2017, I just want you to know you will never be alone on whatever path you may choose. If you do have a moment where you feel a little down, just think of the support you have from this great Trojan family. And imagine me. Literally picture my face singing this song gently into your ear. If I should stay, I would only be in your way. So I'll go. But I know I'll think of you every step of the way, and I will always love you. of 2017 and I will always love you thank you fight on There's not much to say after that. Will Farrell dazzling the crowd at the University of Southern California. 
And it's commencement time. We bring you the best, the worst. Robert De Niro, Denzel Washington, Steve Jobs. Much more to come through the weeks and the month. This is Our American Stories, Will Farrell's story on commencement day at his alma mater. <laughs> 